Your Bibles now, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. I want you to find verse number 53 very quickly, if you could. So we're going to go right to the reading of our text verses. Uh, For several weeks, we have been discussing the kingdom parables that Jesus taught in this 13th chapter. And we've come to the conclusion of those teachings. And this 13th chapter is just a major discourse in the book of Matthew. And here in the scriptures that we're going to read today is where we find our first insight to the practicality of Jesus' teachings concerning the kingdom. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you'll look at Matthew 13, beginning at verse number 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, you'd open up our hearts to the message for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you, who is the most famous person in the world or the most famous person that ever lived, I doubt that there would be anybody here in this congregation who would not say Jesus Christ. If I were to go outside of this congregation, go to someplace else where there's a gathering of people, not even a religious gathering, and were to ask them the same question, I think I might get a few different answers, but almost invariably the overwhelming response to that question would still be Jesus Christ. Jesus is certainly uh, a famous historical figure, one that few people haven't heard of. But if I were to ask you who he was and why he came to this world, what is he all about, then I know that I would get a lot of different answers. If I were to ask you a question about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, the answers, I think, from everybody here would be nearly identical. Or if I ask about Napoleon or even someone as terrible as Hitler, then most of you would probably give just about the same answer. And that's because there is one basic historical truth about those people, and there's very little diversity about the facts of their life. But Jesus is a much different person. Because there are people that claim to know about him and those who say that they are associated with him and yet they don't accept the very clear declarations that are made about him in Scripture. There are Christian denominations that claim him. The Mormons claim him, and you may not even may not be aware of this, but even the Muslims, to some degree, claim him. But in all of those groups, including some that are in Christianity, you will find that there is a denial of some or even most of Jesus' very basic teachings. We only have one historical record that tells us about Jesus. There's only one that tells us who he is and what he did. There's only one that came from the people that knew him best and heard him teach. 
And that one record that we have is the Bible. And yet, when we sit down to talk to people about who Jesus is and what he did, there are many different answers that are given. And what the world has done is to change Jesus into a culturally sensitive character. And rather than being God, the one to whom we must all answer, the one who is perfect righteousness and has given a mandate for our lives, Jesus is turned into this lovey, dovey, sweet fellow. It's perfectly happy with just the way things are, that he never wants to hurt anybody's feelings. And more than anything else, what Jesus stands for is peace, prosperity, liberty, and justice for all. And so they believe that his chief objective in ministry was to make sure that that everybody is accepted on his own merits, that, that each person is allowed his own pursuit of his happiness, and he might do that in any way that he wants to do it. Just as long as you're personally happy, that's all that really counts. And it's amazing how many times that you'll hear people say things like, Jesus never judged anyone. And they'll take examples from his life, such as the woman that Jesus freed from those that were accusing her of adultery. He set her free and... You remember that story as he said to her, I, I don't condemn you, but then he said, go and sin no more. Or they take other examples such as Jesus became the friend of sinners and he was the friend of even the lowest in society. Or they might even look at the example of Jesus on the cross when he forgave the thief as he was dying there. And they draw from that that Jesus is just a or he was just a tolerant, politically correct do-gooder, that he just wanted everybody to get along. And they may well believe that the first person to say, can we all just get along, was not Rodney King, but was in fact Jesus Christ. But you can take all of those ideas and, and roll them all together, and not only are they an inaccurate assessment of who Jesus was and what he taught, but they actually become a blasphemous attack on the Christ of Scripture. And whenever you start to teach people the truth about him and what Jesus actually did and what he said, when you give them the real account of his life, then you see this this unbelief begins to rear its, its head. It just growls back at you like a wounded dog. And that's because preachers and churches have taught so longly about Jesus for so many years. They've taught this culturally sensitive Jesus for so long that that is the image that's ingrained into people's minds. And what they have is their own version of Jesus, and it's nothing at all like what's taught in Scripture. But when you are confronted with the true biblical record that we have here of who Jesus was and what he taught, then you have to make a decision. You have to decide, is the Bible right or is the Bible wrong? You must be faced with that decision. Now, our passage today is very insightful concerning people that were confronted with the truth and yet seeing that very truth before their eyes, they denied it. And these are people that are faced with the obvious, but their unbelief was so powerful that they would not let the truth come through. Their minds were completely blinded to truth. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I know that you've heard a lot of sermons about faith, and you've heard much said about the power of faith, the power of believing in Jesus Christ, 
We talk about great men and women that were people of faith, and we find that in the Bible. I know most of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 11 that we call the Hall of Faith, and there you find people that lived by faith. There's Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and a list of others, and it goes on. And those were people that had great faith. They were people that believed in a great God, and because of that belief, they were able to do great things for God. But as we look at that list, we also know that living beside of them at the same time, there are people that are just as powerfully locked down in their unbelief. There are people that walk through with Moses on dry ground through the Red Sea, and yet in a few days we find them murmuring against God and asking to return to Egypt. And finally, their unbelief became so strong that The Bible tells us that most of them died in the wilderness, that they didn't even see the promised land. And you wonder about this. How could these people that had lived in Egypt and then were trying to get free from the bondage that they were in, how could these people who saw the plagues that God brought on Egypt, how can these people that walked with Moses on that dry ground and went through the Red Sea, how can these people that saw the uh, the water that came from the rock and saw bitter waters made sweet and saw people look at a serpent on a pole and be healed, how can those same people turn around and deny God? What's going on with their belief or their unbelief? And it shows you just how powerful that unbelief is. Now, it seems fantastic that with so much evidence, how can people not believe? It just doesn't seem to be rational. Now, we hear the saying all the time that seeing is believing, but there are people that saw and saw and saw and saw, and they did not believe. Unbelief is also very, very powerful. And if you want me to give you the long and short of that, there's nobody that can actually overcome unbelief unless the Holy Spirit of God opens up their heart to the truth. As we look at this scripture today, we're going to examine unbelief. As I said a moment ago, this scripture is our first practical example of the teaching and the parables. Jesus told the disciples or gave them the parable of the wheat and the tares. And in that parable, he said, there are going to be people that are in the kingdom, and they're not believers. And the disciples would begin their ministry among people that most of them would not believe. They would see miracles, they would hear things that the disciples had to say, but their belief would be so strong that the majority of the seeds of the gospel would fall on hard soil, rock-hard soil, where it never penetrates and takes root and grows. That's the power of unbelief. And it's never so more obviously displayed than in the life and ministry of Jesus himself. And we see it here in this scripture. This is when Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth. He went to the place where the people should have known him the best, where they should have recognized something has happened, that there's something different about him now, and put two two and two together and figured out this is God in the flesh. But that's not their reaction. Their unbelief kept them from the wonder-working power of God that was going on throughout all that region of Galilee. Now, let's begin the scriptures, and over the course of this, next, this week and, and next week, we're going to look at these important truths in relation to the rejection of Jesus in his hometown. 
Verse 53 says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. He departed thence. Now that's telling us that Jesus had been teaching somewhere else, of course, and the region where he was probably teaching was Capernaum. That was his home base during the Galilean ministry. So that means that Jesus was in the northwestern part of Galilee, on the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And in verse number 36, if you go back there, where it says that Jesus went into the house, and that's when he went in to explain to the disciples the parable, that that house was probably in the region or was in Capernaum. So there he is in the northwestern part of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, and only about a day's walking distance from his hometown in Nazareth. Now, apparently all the parables were spoken in a day or at least or at most just a few days. And when Jesus had finished teaching those, he decided he was going to go back to his hometown, to the place where he had grown up. And so in verse 54 it says, And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Now what I'd like you to notice today, here's where we're going to spend our time, and that's in the alarm of unbelief. The alarm of it. Jesus had returned to his hometown. Now we know this is not the place where Jesus was born We know that story of how Jesus was born near Jerusalem in Bethlehem in the city of David. But there was also the part about Herod, the wicked king, who wanted to kill Jesus. And so Mary and Joseph were actually residents of Nazareth. They had come to Bethlehem. And when this threat came on Jesus' life, they took him and they went down into Egypt. So after Herod had died... Mary and Joseph returned to Israel, and the place that they went to was not Bethlehem, but they went to the place where they had lived before, and that was to the city of Nazareth. And Nazareth was a small town that was built on a hill. It was in, the, of course, the region of Galilee. And at the base of this hill, there was a major route that traveled through, went through Israel. And uh, since it was a major route, there was a lot of people that would stop in at Nazareth and There was a lot of riffraff that came off the road and stayed there. And so Nazareth began to develop a very, very bad reputation. And you may remember that Nathanael, when he was told about Jesus, Nathanael said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, the reputation of the city was terrible. And that might help you to understand a little bit about the alarm or the astonishment of these, of these people when Jesus came back to Nazareth and they had heard about him and they said, where does he get this wisdom? How does he do all these mighty works? Now, in these questions that they ask, they, they, they start out asking about his authority. Where does he get his authority? They couldn't believe that someone from their hometown had actually made it good. Somebody from Nazareth has actually become famous, and he can teach the way that he taught and do the things that he did. And so in verse 54, it says that he went into the synagogue to teach. Now, this is most likely the second and the final time that Jesus was in Nazareth. And you may remember that The first time after he began his ministry and he went to Nazareth, it turned out very badly for him. Now, if you look, if you would, in Luke chapter 4, we're going to see how that first trip to Nazareth ended. And this is a good scripture for us to examine, and I'm just really sorry we don't have time to go into it today. But Jesus went into the synagogue at Nazareth to teach, 
and he was asked to read from the book of Isaiah. And the place that he read was from Isaiah chapter 61. And you can read about this in this fourth chapter. Uh, It tells us there from the 16th verse down to the 19th verse what he read. The passage is Isaiah 61, and that is a prophecy about the Messiah. And so when Jesus had finished reading through that, he said to them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he took the Old Testament passage that they were so familiar with, and they'd read so many times, and he said, that's talking about me. Today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. Now I want you to notice their reaction to that in verses 28 through 30. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, when he, when he said, this is about me, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong, and he passing through the midst of them went his way. The reaction of these people is that they became very angry when Jesus made the application of Scripture to himself. So they took him up on the edge of the hill where the city was built, and they wanted to throw him off just to see him fall off the side of that cliff and his body broken and his brains dashed out on the rocks beneath. They hated him so much. And the Bible says that Jesus was able to escape from them. Of course, his time wasn't come. It wasn't time for him to die, and he certainly wasn't going to die that way. So he was able to get away from them. But now we come to this text, and this is about a year after that incident, and Jesus returned to Nazareth. This is after he had crisscrossed Galilee on many different preaching trips, and he had done miracles of every kind. Every sickness that you can imagine had been healed. Demons were cast out of people. People were raised from the dead. So thousands upon thousands of miracles had been done. And you can be sure of this, with that small distance between all these cities of Galilee and people going in and out and traveling all around, people from Nazareth had heard about the things that Jesus did. They're within walking distance of all the miracles that he did and the fame of Jesus spread throughout all of Israel. And that's no doubt the reason why they allowed him to come back into the synagogue. And before they threw him out, they tried to kill him. But now Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and the hometown boy has become famous. And nobody from Nazareth was ever famous before. And so they questioned this. Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? And that's an example of how powerful that unbelief can be. Because we notice here, they didn't deny any miracles. They didn't deny anything that he did. They didn't say these miracles are fake. They never said... Well, we have another Benny Hinn on our hands. We, we can't prove anything that he did was a miracle. No, they knew the miracles had been done. No one questioned the miracles. So they were real, and they could look everywhere and see the evidence of them. Blind people can see. Lame people can walk. There are dead people, for goodness sake, that are up and walking around and going about their regular business just like they hadn't died. And nobody said, these aren't miracles. They never questioned them. The real question that they had was where does he get the authority to do them? And that's the burning question that we had before in the 12th chapter. And the answer to that question, the unbelief was so strong there, they said, where does he get the authority to do this? They saw a a, a demon cast out of a dumb man, and the Pharisees amazingly concluded 
When this man was blind, could see again. When he was dumb, he could speak again. And amazingly, they concluded, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And so likewise, the ridiculous question comes, where do these mighty works come from? How does he know the scriptures so well? And isn't the answer to that so obvious? Isn't it obvious? I mean, that's a stupid question, isn't it? I mean, how could he do these things? These have to be works that come from God. And yet their unbelief would not let them come to the obvious conclusion. So they didn't say, this is of God. There's evidence of it. How can they not come from God? Because you examine what they'd seen what Satan could do. And what had they seen from Satan? Well, Satan's power does what? It causes blindness. It causes dumbness. It, it, it causes demon possession and men to go into cemeteries and cut themselves with stones and live in cemeteries. So it's a crazy question they ask. Where does he get his authority? Is this Satan's work or is it God's work? And they do not say he is God, he is of God, he is the Messiah. And you know why they didn't? Because what they taught from Scripture was not the same as what he taught. And in spite of all the evidence, they wouldn't say, well, he's right and we're wrong. Do we see that kind of unbelief still today? Are there people that read the Bible and they see what the Bible says about Jesus and where he so plainly speaks about subjects like sin and about hell and about righteousness and the responsibility of everyone to repent of sin? Do they read the Bible and they say, you know something, he's right and we're wrong? No, they, they still question the authority. Who is Jesus to tell me what to do? And while they admit to the fame that I talked to you about when we began the message, they admit to all the good things that Jesus did, what they do then is to deconstruct the Jesus of the Bible and they invent this culturally sensitive Jesus. They mold Jesus into their image and he's the Jesus that never steps on a bug and he certainly does not have the authority to tell us that our lifestyles are wrong. So instead of responding to Jesus as they should, they just make up a different Jesus, one that never questions their activities, one who never talks about the morality. And you know, that's why when you bring a Bible into the discussion, bring the Word of God into a discussion about abortion or about homosexuality, that all of a sudden people's eyes glaze over, this is not the Jesus they know. It's, it's, not, it's not the one that they've been taught. And they don't look at the real historical record of Jesus and his teachings. They ignore all that and they say, no, that's not the Jesus we know. The Jesus we know is tolerant of all people. And I'm not just talking about it in a secular way either because what churches have done is to invite sin into the church. We have women preachers today. We have gay preachers. We have adulterous preachers. And they're all brought into the church and because Jesus doesn't oppose those kinds of things. Do you know that's far worse than me handing you a history book? And uh, it's about, you know, I tell you, read this passage here or, or tell me, read this book about George Washington. And you read that and you say, you know something? George Washington was never president of the United States. George Washington was never a general in the Continental Army. George Washington didn't have wooden teeth. He had teeth that were made of high polymer plastics. Didn't you know that? Well, you could say that all you want. I mean, you could claim anything that you want about George Washington, but we know the truth, don't we? 
Well, we know what the we know what the the history books say about him, and so if you claim something other than what the history books say about him, then what happens? Well, you look like an idiot. You can say anything that you want, then you look like an idiot. But you know something? The only thing that's going to happen to you, you're just going to look like an idiot. Nothing else is going to happen to you. But I'll tell you something. What happens when you deny what the Bible says about Jesus? And when you make up something that's different than what the Bible says about Jesus and you invent your own Jesus, there are serious consequences. Because you have to give a response to him. You're going to be held accountable for how you believed in him and how you responded to what he taught. And what did he say? He said, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to repent of all of your sins. You have to put your faith in me that you'll never have forgiveness of your sins in any other way. If you don't believe me, he says the destination for you is hell. Now, folks, that's the real Jesus. That's not a fairy tale idea of him. That's what the Bible says. And you know, there are some Christians that try to do the same thing that a lot of lost people do. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they say, well, I have Christ as my Savior, but he really doesn't have to be my Lord. Now, sometime he, he will be. Someday he may be my Lord, but not now. And so I think we have a lot of church members that are actually unregenerate people. I mean, they just go on and they live like the devil every day and they still say they belong to Christ. And because they walked down an aisle once, and because they raised their hand once, or they met a preacher once at the front, or they went through the uh, waters in the baptistry, because of those things, they said, well, I'm okay, I'm born again, everything's fine. But they live as if Jesus has no authority whatsoever over their lives. Jesus has no right to tell them how that they are to live. And so they just cast all that aside. And I, folks, I want to tell you, if you're going to cast all of that aside and say Jesus is not, is not the Lord of my life, then you might as well mark your name off the list of Christians. That doesn't mean that what you do makes you a Christian. It means that if you haven't been changed to be something different than you were, then you're not a Christian. Everybody that gets saved demonstrates a change in their life. So they don't talk the same way or look the same way, act the same way. They're a new creation in Jesus Christ. And if that hasn't happened to you, then you're just like the people in Nazareth. And you're asking, where does he get his authority? Why does he have the right to say these things? So that's what they wanted to know. And the answer is obvious. The problem is they don't like the answer. Their unbelief is too powerful to admit they're wrong, he's right. Now look at verses 55 and 56. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? Well, there's a lot to say on these verses, and we're just getting a start here. But here's the next question. That is, what is his authenticity? Who, who, Who just... Who is, he? Who is this guy? And this is really a question about kingship. It's a question about his deity. Who is Jesus? And they ask it in this way. Isn't he just a carpenter's son? Isn't he just Mary's boy? And isn't he just a regular child and his brothers and sisters we know? Those are all actually claims against his deity. So how can they recognize him as God when he's the same boy that they knew that grew up, the same one that had a hammer in his hand and a trowel in his hand or a saw, how can he be God when we saw him grow up in such an ordinary way? How can he be God when his parents are so ordinary, his brothers and sisters are ordinary? 
And again, there's a lot to say about this. If we could just climb into their minds and examine what they were thinking when they saw Jesus do the things that he did and heard about all the miracles that he did and the way that he taught, what are they thinking? Well, we notice here first that they, they, they have questions about his ordinary childhood. When Jesus went into the synagogue to teach, without doubt there were many familiar faces there. And we know that by the kinds of questions they asked. They knew him. They, they knew his family. They knew his occupation. They saw him grow up as a child. And actually, the scriptures here are an indication that there was just nothing special about his childhood. Now, we know that Jesus never sinned, but I'm sure that there were people that looked at that like I may look at Carson or I may look at the Petro boys or something like that. And when I see them here, these are good boys, and they, they just never get into any kind of trouble. If I go home and ask their I don't see them at home, but if I ask their parents, did they ever do anything wrong, they probably have a different story to tell. But as far as I'm looking at it, uh, you know, here, I don't see anything wrong. These are great kids, and they're just perfect little children. Well, I don't think a whole lot about that then. You know, they're pretty good kids. And I think that's probably what people thought about Jesus. You know, he's just a pretty good kid. He, he just does the right thing. He, he's an honor to his parents or whatever. And the only ones that really, really that's a problem with are the other kids at home because that's a lot of pressure. A lot of pressure living with another kid, your brother, your sister, that's perfect. That, that's too much pressure to live with. So they, they probably notice something only because they get tired of being compared to him. But there are a lot of stories invented about when Jesus was a child. There's one author that, that did point out that, that we only actually have one story of Jesus when he was growing up. Now, we know that he was taken to, to Egypt, as I, I said, when he was very, very little. And then from there, we only have one other story. That's when Jesus was 12 years old. And there he was in the temple, and the uh, leaders, the, the priests there were amazed at the knowledge that Jesus had. And that's it, 12 years old. And we don't see anything at all about him until he's into his public ministry at about the age of 30 years old. But really, this scripture becomes a very insightful passage as to what Jesus was doing in all of those years. What was he doing? Nothing. Nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, there's plenty of stories that are invented about how Jesus helped little babies, even healed little babies. People tell stories like that. Or that Jesus was out playing one day, and he spotted a little bird with a broken wing. And so Jesus took the little bird in his hands, and it was healed and flew away. And there's stories like that. And so what they're saying is that while Jesus was a child, that he showed some of his divine attributes. That's before he began his public ministry. Now, the problem, though, is that these verses seem to deny this because the whole point of this passage and the questions about their unbelief is that he is anything but divine. We've never seen anything like this before from him. And so he's just an ordinary kid. He's grown up but now doing things they've never seen before in their lives. None of their religious leaders could do what he did. None of them could do what he did. So they're puzzled by it. Now, the second thing that we notice here, that he has ordinary parents. They said, is, not, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Now, they didn't really understand who his father was, of course. 
And it's likely that Joseph had died by this time. And Jesus, being the elder son, what he did was to take over the family business. And so they said, it's not this is the carpenter's son. This is how we know him. This is what he's done while he lived in Nazareth. Now, that word carpenter actually means an artisan. And it doesn't necessarily mean a carpenter like we think of today. But that is the Christian tradition, that he was a carpenter. And so maybe he built yokes for oxen or he made plows. And if it refers to home building, he actually would have been a stonemason because that's what houses were made of then, stone. But they would have door frames and they have windows and tables and so forth that have to be made. And so he works with wood. Maybe that's right. But the point of it is, though, that he just did ordinary things. I mean, his occupation was an ordinary occupation. His father was a carpenter. He followed in his father's footsteps and did what his father did. Nothing unusual about that. And then notice, we should notice this, particularly about his mother. There's nothing at all special about his mother. Now, the Roman Catholics refer to Mary as the queen of heaven. And they say, well, Mary was, had always remained a virgin after Jesus was born. She never had any other children. Well, you've got a real problem here because his brothers and sisters are mentioned and some of the names are given. And in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the first son that Mary had. What does that imply? She had other children. And so they said, look at his parents. There's nothing special about him at all. Thirdly, They look at his brothers and sisters, ordinary siblings. His brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? So they knew the children that were in the family. There's nothing uncommon about them. In fact, if you were to go to any of those children and you said to them, is Jesus the Messiah? Every one of them would have said no. No. That's because none of them believed. It wasn't until after Jesus was raised from the dead, that they actually believed. And so if someone went to them and said, is this the Messiah? Is he God? They would have said, no way. He's not the son of God. And I think that people had probably already been to uh, the brothers and sisters. They heard about what Jesus was doing, and so they just looked up his brothers and sisters, and they said, how can he do these things? How is it possible? How does he do all the miracles? Where does he get that power? And they probably didn't say this. You know what? What do you think? How do you think he got his power? He got it from the devil, of course. Well, they wouldn't have said that, but they would have said, we don't know. We're not sure how he has this power, but we do know this. He's not God. In chapter 12, verses 46 and 47, his family attempted an intervention because Jesus had made so many wild, outlandish statements. He said, I'm, better than, I'm greater than Jonah. He said, I'm greater than Solomon. That's a crazy guy that speaks like that. And so they said, no way he's God. But afterwards, after he came out of that tomb, if you went to them, they would have said, you better believe he's the son of God. You better believe he is the Savior. You had better believe that he is Christ. In fact, we just read it a little while ago, didn't we? Jude the half-brother of Jesus, what did he say? The first verse of Jude. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother to James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. You go back to the book of James. There you have another half-brother. And he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt in their minds that he was the Christ and they called him Lord. But everything in his previous life up to the time 
personal, his personal ministry gave no indication that he was divine. The exception, of course, is that he never sinned, but I explained that. It's really not noticeable to anyone. Mary and Joseph are the only ones that really understand how extraordinary that he was. So here's the assessment. He doesn't have a prominent family. He doesn't come from a prominent place. He's the hometown boy, and nobody from Nazareth has ever made it good. So how can he be anything other than ordinary? But you still have the problem. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. Nobody's ever done these things. Nobody they know has ever spoke scriptures with such authority. And so they're astonished, and they say, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Whence hath this man all these things? They saw, and they saw, and they saw. But in this case, seeing is unbelieving. As Jesus said, They seeing see not, and hearing hear not, neither do they understand. You know the problem? The unbelief is too powerful for them to overcome. They would not receive him as Lord and Savior. Now, the blindness and that hardness of heart towards Jesus still continues today. From the first century onward, we see the same problems. There have been controversies in all these 2,000 years about the deity of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John dealt with it with the Gnostics. They said that he's... He, he, Jesus was just an ordinary man. The Holy Spirit came upon him and stayed with him for a little while. And then before he went to the cross, the Holy Spirit left this man and Jesus died as just a man. That was their explanation. In the fourth century, the Arians came along and they didn't believe that he was eternally God. Today, you can walk about two blocks from our church down the street to the Mormon building and they don't believe that Jesus is eternal God. They believe that he was created just like Satan was created. And the only practical difference between Jesus and Satan in that matter is that Jesus decided to be good and Satan decided to be bad. The Jehovah Witnesses may come to your door this week and they'll knock on your door and they'll say, why, he's a little God. Look at their interpretation of John 1.1. He is a little God, just a little God, but not Jehovah God. He's not the ruler of heaven and earth. And so there are still questions about his deity, his eternal deity. And if you want to get down to the brass tacks about it, anybody who believes in the culturally sensitive Jesus or the politically correct Jesus or the prosperity Jesus, they deny the only record that we have of his life. That's the Bible. They don't know Jesus any more than the people of Nazareth actually knew Jesus. So here's the problem. Everybody constructs a Jesus like they want him to be. That's the alarm of unbelief. Rather than to believe what the Bible says, rather than to believe what he so clearly says, unbelievers say he can't be God. Can't be who he claims to be. Where does this man get his wisdom? How does he do such mighty works? Now, I want to leave you today with these questions. The first one is, how do you answer these questions? For same thing that they ask. Is he just the carpenter's son? Is he just the son of Mary? Is he the son of Joseph? What about his brothers and sisters? I mean, do we not have enough evidence of who Jesus truly was? How is he able to do such mighty works? Is he grace and truth? And I'll tell you this, if you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, and if you're not obedient to him as the master of your life, you don't have the right answers to the questions. You are in this powerful grip of unbelief. Now, this is a demonstration, as I said earlier, of the kingdom parables. Some people 
some people's hearts are just stony ground. They hear all that we say, they read the Bible, they see the record of Jesus, but it doesn't penetrate down into their souls to where they believe. And I hope that you're not like them. I hope that's not where you are. And what I pray today will happen is the Holy Spirit will soften your heart to this message of Jesus Christ, and you will believe the gospel. You will believe what the Bible says about him and what you are supposed to do in response to him. That's the Jesus Christ. This is the one who is the Savior. It's the one that we read about in the book of Jude. And there's all these stories about who Jesus is and what he said people must do in order to be right with God. And I hope that he softened your heart so you understand that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for what we know from the truth of your word about him. Lord, I just pray that there would be no one here that would try to construct a Jesus in their mind that is anything other than what the Bible has to say about him. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to to understand and to believe the truth about him. And if there's anyone here today who says, now I see that, now I recognize that, I just pray, Lord, that you would bring them to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will save to the believing of, uh, believe to the saving of their souls. Lord, bless us as we sing now. Help us to contemplate these issues. And we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's all